Well, we'll be looking at those verses and really all of chapter 13, because we are now completely through Hebrews. It's taken us 13 weeks to highlight some of the major themes in what seems like can be a long book of the Bible. However, if you look forward at verse 22, it says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. So in the final chapter of Hebrews, the author, by God's inspiration and authority, says this is a short book of the Bible. In case you're curious like me, where does it fit in terms of the length? Well, the New Testament alone, if we just look there, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four Gospels about Jesus. Acts is about the history of early Christians. And then there are 21 letters to Christians like us. So the first 13 of those are written by Paul, and those are ordered by the longest to the shortest. And so Hebrews would be tied for third. So it's actually one of the longer letters, but as you can see here, at the very end, we're meant to see that even though we're finishing Hebrews, we're going to look at one of the major themes here, which is God's love. God's love that never ends. Sometimes people misunderstand the Bible, wondering how can we trust the words that we're meant to see here. Well, the real reality is, as we're going to see, what does it say? What does it mean? Because if you think about it, for the God of all universe that spoke just by the very command of His voice, He spoke and light was created. It wouldn't take much to consider the same God that speaks all things into creation also can reveal the Bible to be written for us to understand more about his love. So here in Hebrews chapter 13, we're meant to see just that. Just like any good movie, any good book, maybe even your parting words, you want those to be really meaningful. So here, we're told numerous ways that God's love can change us. So even though we're finishing the study of Hebrews, God's love never ends. I try to keep it short too, just in the same way that the Hebrews writer, by God's inspiration and authority, says this is a short letter. I had more, but I kept it just to nine. We'll keep them in groups of three to see nine ways that God's love is never-ending. The first is found in the very first verse that was already read for us. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Not just to brothers, but this is describing Christian love. That to be a church together is to be in God's family forever. 
But if you notice here, even though Jesus brought us God's love, we are forgiven and loved by God through Jesus, we're also meant to be reminded here to make sure we don't forget to show love to even other Christians. Because the reality is, sometimes it can be hard to love even Christians. In fact, if you've ever thought about it, that's one of the many reasons why we need Jesus, isn't it? To help us to love. Otherwise, we only love when it's convenient. God says we're supposed to love even when we don't always agree with one another. All three of these first group of people that we're meant to love, the next two especially might be a little surprising, but the first one here should also stick out. Of course we should have love to fellow Christians. So what does that look like? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're told very practical ways to think about one another as a church. It says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It also addresses marriage, as we will also talk about in a moment. But first, even in just these short verses, this includes every one of us. Because when we're born into this world, from our first day of life, we have lots of people older than us, don't we? And the older we get, the, the number of people younger than us continues to increase. Here we're meant to see those who are older we treat as mothers and as fathers. Those younger as sisters and brothers. But the first challenge is to think of those who are older with the caution not to rebuke harshly. Now that word rebuke is maybe not one we use very often, even in English. And that should be a good thing. Because it's not something that we should be necessarily excited to have to do. The other way to understand that is to exhort, even as we saw in here, to challenge, to urge strongly, to correct. I was speaking with another pastor not too long ago who was older than me, and he was passing on some encouragement to me, and he said, Zach, I'm going to be honest. I don't love confrontation and conflict. And I paused and said back, I don't think any of us should love conflict and problems and drama. And we both laughed because that's sort of the point here. However, it doesn't say we avoid this at all costs. It just says to make sure that we don't do it harshly or rudely. The opposite of this would be to be quarrelsome, to be dismissive or resentful. That's similar to last week when we talked about bitterness in chapter 12. The reality is, the older we get, sometimes it can be harder 
to listen and be encouraged by those younger. However, we're not alone in this. Every one of us should be guided by the Bible. Which means when you have someone older encouraging, we go to the Bible to make sure that that's what God's Word says. And for those who are younger, who are urging, exhorting, and rebuking, an older person shouldn't say, oh, who are you to tell me what to do? Don't you know what I've done and what I've experienced? Instead, it can be listened to with humility, can it? Say, well, let's take a look at that Bible verse together. In fact, even as I think about that, a few years ago, I had met a retired pastor who was a great encouragement to me, who came to me to provide help and maybe some advice along the way, but every once again, he would look at me and he would say, Zach, I'm not being too grumpy, am I? I'd say, no, Pastor John. And I shared that at his memorial just now over a couple years ago when I preached at his funeral. And I shared that and other people came to me and said, Zach, do you know that we've known John for a long time? He used to not be that way. But the older he got, the sweeter he got. And it still stays with me. We're also told to love others who are younger as brothers and sisters. For an illustration of this, we can go back briefly to summarize Cain and Abel. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a bad example, of course. What brothers should not do. Abel was worshiping God and was blessed by God. Meanwhile, his brother Cain was jealous, bitter, resentful. And in his hatred, he took the life of his own flesh and blood. As if that wasn't bad enough, when God came to Cain to ask, where is Abel? What did Cain say? He said, am I my brother's keeper? I once heard that described as very sarcastic-like. In other words, saying, what am I, God? Am I my brother's babysitter? Well, he was far from it, wasn't he? He had taken the life of his own brother. And when it came time for God to deal with Cain, God was merciful, wasn't he? And he sends him away. But even there, we see Cain's heart and his lack of heart for his brother. Because when he was sent away to be a wanderer and a fugitive, Instead of appreciating that he was spared, Cain responds to God by saying, God, this is too harsh. This is unfair. If I go out to wander, I'm out there unprotected. Essentially, Cain said to God, what about my life, God? All the while, he didn't care for his brother's life at all. But it does show us that Cain understood the danger of being away from his family, away from his community, and even to be away from God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us the end of Cain's story. 
But this is a caution to make sure we don't come anywhere close to Cain's attitude. I think we would all hope that we wouldn't want to harm anyone. But if we're honest, in our hearts, we all know what it's like to criticize instead of love, to be jealous instead of being glad when others achieve, when others succeed and progress. Cain, meanwhile, wanted to prove himself instead of rejoicing in his brother's worship. One way to think about this is to consider competitions in our life. When we don't win first place, how do we respond? I saw recently about athletes who loved the sport so much that when they saw the first place person break a world record, instead of thinking about how they took second and third place, they rejoiced in the achievement, knowing it will better the sport. How much more so when we consider our own lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. The next group we're meant to consider when it comes to God's never-ending love is to extend that even to strangers, to show love by being hospitable. Now, as an American that just moved to Mexico, I can say that the reputation of Mexico has truly stood up. The value here for hospitality, something that's encouraging to me to welcome others, to share with others who are in need. Here in Hebrews, it tells us to entertain people even if you don't know them. Because the reality, as the Bible tells us, is it might even be an angel. Now that gets your attention as it gets mine. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham invited a few strangers to come and to stay with them. And this was after Abraham, Abraham had obeyed God and left his home to follow God, to be blessed, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. But even in the midst of being away from his own home, he still showed hospitality to complete strangers, not knowing that they had come with a message from God. If Abraham didn't do this, he may have missed the way that God was going to be faithful to the promises to bless his family. As we think about that for us here, what a blessing it is to be a church where we have people coming from different places in the world to come into worship together here at Union Church. A short time I've been here, I've been blessed to hear about the kindness and hospitality that many here have experienced to now make this a place where we can join together to continue to show love and kindness to others through hospitality. One definition of what that looks like is that hospitality 
takes the ordinary and uses it for the extraordinary. Hospitality takes the ordinary, takes maybe a simple meal or maybe just sending a simple message of encouragement and uses it to bless others. That's what we see here, that an angel, if we were one day to find out that we've entertained and shown hospitality to even angelic beings, that would certainly get our attention. But it also points us to God's Son, Jesus Himself, who did this for us, even though He's the perfect Son of God, who was born into this world to live a, an ordinary human life perfectly for us, to change our lives from the ordinary into eternal. And then finally, very similarly, we see another area and category to show love that might be unexpected. Verse 3 points out to those who are prisoners. This describes early Christians who are mistreated for their faith, arrested just for believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. All throughout history, we can look back and see that Christians sadly had been mistreated and even arrested for their faith. Made to suffer just by telling people about what? About God's perfect love. Now maybe you know what it's like for someone to be angry with you just for telling you, or just for you telling them about Jesus. I've known people in my life who have given up on a relationship together because of that. This is another encouragement to make sure that we pray for those who are suffering and to never give up on love, even if it meant that our freedoms would be taken away. Once more, Jesus is the greatest example who suffered unjustly, mistreated for us, put on trial, beaten, imprisoned so that we can have God's love forever. And in a moment, too, we'll see how the Apostle Paul shared a similar experience. The next three ways that we'll lump together that we can experience God's never-ending never love is through marriage, money, and leadership. I almost try to do three M's to put marriage, money, and masters, but I think leadership does just as fine. But verses 4 through 7 says marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. This describes one of the big Ten Commandments. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. That's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. What this tells us when it comes to love, when it comes to marriage, we need God to define it. Because God created it. We need God's love so that we can better understand marriage. And once more, this includes everyone. It says marriage should be honored by all. So even someone who's unmarried, not yet married, widowed, can still live 
a single life that's virtuous. Otherwise, there's a warning. If marriage isn't kept pure, God is telling us it can tear lives apart. It destroys what God created. Even Jesus was questioned about divorce. And essentially, the way that I've come to understand that, Jesus says that adultery is the physical act of saying, I don't want to be married with this person. I'd rather be physically united with someone else. And even as we think about that, perhaps even in your own life, you can think of people and experiences in your life that are tough to deal with, that provide hurts in our hearts. When we think about love, dating, and marriage, but the reality is God cares enough about us to tell us about these things, to warn us, and to encourage us. Even as I was thinking about that, I met a friend in college who one day opened up to me about how his father, who was a Christian leader in his church, one day got caught committing adultery. But instead of repenting, his dad just left left the church, and left his family. And my friend said it took a long time to get over those hurts. I also have another friend that one day when he shared with me about some of the hardship that he's experienced when it comes to these issues, one day just looked at me in the eye and said, Zach, my kids will never have to experience any of these things by God's grace. And I took him seriously with that. And not to mention, too, even as we hear this, I've also known of other married couples who have experienced adultery in their marriage. And by God's grace, they sought repentance. And they overcame it. And were stronger as the result. The reality is, We don't have time to go into the many issues that can come up in terms of these topics of marriage and love and sex, but that's why it's also best to deal with individually or in groups. So if you are struggling in these areas, and start by turning to God. You're also welcome to contact me and rely on other marriages that can help with prayer, and even to share some of the things that they've gone through. Next in chapter 13, we see something else to avoid, which is the love of money. To show again, as we've already dealt with in Hebrews, when it comes to God's never-ending love, it cannot compete, should not compete, with a love for things. We find this also in Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul wrote this while being in prison himself, sharing about that challenge and reminder to pray for those who are struggling. But in the midst of his suffering, he wrote, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned 
but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Here we're presented two extremes to watch out for. Sadly, sometimes this can be misunderstood to say, well, see, if you just trust God, all of your financial problems will be solved. Well, that's not true because it says here, I know what it is to have or to be in need. The other extreme is sometimes people misunderstand this to say, well, God really wants to bless those who live a life of poverty. Well, that can't be true because it also says here, I know what it is to have plenty. So one way to avoid this, and sadly I see this come up again to correct it, but if any Christian leader says that they just want more and more money for themselves, that misunderstands this passage, doesn't it? That all throughout the Bible, we're, we're told that it's not money itself it's the issue. It's the love of money or the lack of contentment, meaning whenever money, resources, and possessions come up in the Bible, we're meant to see that it is a heart issue. And that's why God started with tithing, a tenth, 10%. Some can give more. For others, 10%, a tithe is a big sacrifice, but the reality is God knew our hearts for comparison, so he said 10% as a starting point for all to honor God with resources to be used for his glory. Anything beyond that misses the very heart of God. In fact, I even heard recently someone who said a church leader was asking for money to be given to him directly instead of being given to church. Of the many things wrong with that, it makes that individual rich by stealing from what belongs to God. Now, just as we said with marriage, money can be a topic that can bring up bad experiences, reveal our hearts. But one way to reconcile that is to ask that question, if there's anything that you lost that would be taken away, if it left you hopeless and helpless, then there's a need for God's contentment. If you say things like, if only I had blank, whatever you fill in the blank there, could have control over your life. Or if you say, I'd be content if only this were different. The reality is, we either take possession of our possessions or they will take possession of us. God says, as Philippians 4 says, we can do all things through Christ, through Him who gives strength. The reality is we are all limited. None of us are all sufficient. Only Jesus is enough. 
None of us can say that we have perfect love. But Jesus, his love, can always help. And finally, the third way we see in this section identified for us in ways that we can grow in love is with leadership. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Once more, very briefly, we see two things to avoid when it comes to leadership and love. One is to sadly look back at all the bad examples of leadership, corrupt politicians. We don't have enough time to go over all those because sadly there are many. But the other extreme to avoid is to elevate an individual to give them a position of power of absolute control. History also shows bad examples of that as well. That's why the Christian leaders who have helped me the most in my life have even started by saying, when it comes to preaching, I heard one pastor I know that will often say, now what I'm preaching here is not 100% accurate, but I'm not going to tell you what part is not accurate because you need to fact check me, meaning you look in the Bible yourself. When I shared that with somebody recently, they said, doesn't that undermine that pastor's authority? I said, no, it should do the opposite, right? It should show us to remind us that none of us are perfect, but we are all guided by God's perfect word. It means that we can listen to what God says and not listen to people preach themselves. Verse 17 should stand out to you. I know it did to me. The key to loving and understanding leadership as God designed is joy. Joy instead of lording it over people. In fact, this leads to where we're going in the next few Sundays leading up to Thanksgiving before Christmas. We're going to be looking at Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd. In a world that seems to question authority, that just uses authority to corrupt and manipulate, God says, think of it differently. Think of it with joy. Knowing that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And that's why we look to him to define even leadership instead of attempting to do it on our own. Let's continue to pray for more joy as Christians, for our homes, for our world. And finally, the last three that we see in Hebrews chapter 13. And as I said, there are many, many more to pull from this chapter. But the way we can have God's never-ending love is to know He is faithful, fearless, and His love is undeserved. Verses 5 and 6 says, keep your lives free of the love of money as we already addressed. But it says that God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In fact, that's a phrase, that's a repeated theme all throughout the Bible. God says, do not fear, have no fear. God said it to Israel in Deuteronomy. And then again in Joshua. 
for his people to live according to the promises that only God gives. Even though they were surrounded by enemy nations that wanted nothing to do with them and hated God. Verse 6 is quoted from Psalm 118 to show how God's love casts out the fear of man. To show us when it comes to understanding love, we know that Christ gave his life for us. He defeated sin, death, was raised from the dead, which means nothing we face can change what Jesus has already done. That's what we already celebrated this morning with communion. That Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus was forsaken for us, so we never have to hear God say that we are forsaken by him. Jesus suffered abandonment. He was put on trial. He was mocked. Even all of his disciples ran for what? For fear of their own lives. Jesus was forsaken by the very ones he came to save. But it wasn't just an emotional and physical abandonment. It was a spiritual desertion. The U.S. military has a saying, the Marines, as many armies do, that you have no man left behind on the battlefield. If that happens, it is the worst offense in betrayal. Jesus was all alone. He didn't just cry out for physical pain. The Creator Himself hung on that cross, crying out for strength, feeling the full weight of our sin, sin that, that was not his own. It was dark and unimaginable, but Jesus did it willingly, with joy. He was forsaken so that we are forgiven. So if you've never trusted Jesus to turn from sin, this is one appeal to know why. Because if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone, God will never say he will leave you or forsake you. We live in a world that's fearful, that tries to use fear to control. But the reality is God doesn't promise a carefree life. God doesn't remove every problem, but he does give us something better. He gives us himself. There is nothing greater than God. It means that we don't have to be told about a thousand different solutions to a thousand different problems. When we face battles, trials, when we find ourselves having fear, God says he is with you. John Calvin commented on this verse by saying, as long as we have such a helper as this, there is no cause to fear. Finally, verses 9 and 10 help us to understand how God's love is undeserved. It says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. 
We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We're blessed with both an Old Testament written before the coming of Jesus and the New Testament written after by God's inspiration and authority, all about Jesus. But sadly, some people today misunderstand to say, well, I'd rather focus on Jesus. I don't really care about the Old Testament. For early Christians, it was the opposite. They had a hard time letting go of the way they worshipped before Jesus. Thinking about the altar, about all the food loss. Verse 9 says, Don't be carried away by those teachings. Instead, be strengthened by what Jesus came to give, His grace. In fact, Jesus Himself pointed this out. That there were people who were so focused on worshiping a certain way outwardly, but missing the very heart of God. One example is Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus says to the religious, religious teachers, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now I know we're getting close to lunchtime, and if you're a cook, you can hear those spices and immediately smell them, can't you? Mint we use in candies, dill, potatoes, cumin, like in chilies. Gets me ready for the harvest festival coming up where we'll have chili in addition to s'mores. But what Jesus was saying is that the religious leaders gave even a tenth of their spices, looking at each of those little grains of, uh, of spice and, and counting them to think that God was going to be impressed by it. But instead, Jesus says, but how's your heart for mercy and justice and faithfulness and grace? To which their sp- response might have been, well, did you see the spices, Jesus? Does he not like spices? Maybe he doesn't like spices. Jesus, don't you see we follow all the food rules? What's wrong with that? And Jesus says it. There's weightier matters. People. Hurting people. The poor, the oppressed, the needy. And if we don't watch it, we can easily make worship about us. Or even to be concerned what others will think of us instead of saying that Jesus came to change our hearts so we can focus on his faithfulness without fear. Then finally, verses 15 and 16 again show how this love is undeserved. Where it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He repeats it again. Let us offer, let us not forget, let us sacrifice with praise and do good. This is all in light of the amazing love that God gives. It's undeserved. The best part is, as verse 15 says, this should be done through 
Jesus. Meaning when it comes to understanding God's never-ending love, we don't say the first word. 1 John 4.19, a very short verse, says we love because he first loved us. This is a verse to hold on to. Maybe memorize, write it down, internalize it in our hearts. Why? Because sadly, perhaps we know that feeling when you say to someone, I love you, only to hear silence, wondering, do they love me in return? When it comes to understanding the heart of God, we don't have to wonder if God says, I love you too. In fact, we don't even start by saying to God, God, I love you. Instead, he proved his love through the gift of his son. It's gifted to us by his very character and not our performance. God's love was based on our performance. We would all be in a lot of trouble. The first mistake we make would be punishment. The good news is it's based on Jesus' performance, who paid for sin in full, who lived a perfect life for us, so that every time we turn to God in prayer to understand and recognize his love, we should say, I love you too, God, knowing he first loved us in Christ. His love is never-ending, eternal, unconditional, and even though we're finishing Hebrews 13, May we live in light of the free gift of salvation that came at the greatest cost, the Lord Jesus, so that we can live out God's never-ending love. Would you pray again with me this morning? Father, we bow our heads, and more importantly, we quiet our hearts to recognize that we all know the feeling being unloved, being hurt, and also acting unkind towards others. We thank you and praise you just as we worshiped this morning through the gift of communion that you sent your son Christ Jesus to show and demonstrate your love for us even while we were still sinners. God, thank you for being honest with us through your word. We once more pray for joy. Pray that more joy would be felt in this world, in our homes, even together as a church. Our hearts are saddened. I think if there are any who have not experienced the love and joy of Jesus, Would you help people to continue to place their faith and trust in you? And to know that even though our lives are short, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. We look to you to define love for ourselves and for one another. All because of your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.